What movies have shaped, molded, changed, warped, twisted, prodded, poked, and all other sorts of weird things to your mind and soul? This is already feeling way too personal, Jake. That's what we're talking about. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. And welcome back inside our crazy brains. I'm Jake. I'm Paul. And this time, Paul, we're really digging into our brains. We really are. Legitimately. <laughs> yeah. I've got you opened up. No. Yeah, no. Blood everywhere. This was a really tricky exercise. Oh. This was this whole podcast, I think, was triggered by a twi- tweet that you sent, right? Well, that I uh, that I sent, but uh, that and actually I never was, responded to. Really, right? Paul was th- well. This was triggered by Paul's inability to respond <laughs> to this on Twitter. But it, I, I mean, I it was too I, deep. I brought Paul into this conversation on Twitter. Uh, Caleb Zier, who was on the show before, mm-hmm. um, talking about Ready Player One, he brought me into it. But it was a trend started by a Twitter account called Film Struck. Oh, okay. And they kind of created this little game, and it ended up getting you know we're always as social media people, right. we're always trying to start fads on Twitter, and so they were successful in saying, "Hey, share pictures." Of the four movies that define you. Yeah, yeah. And and so people started doing that. And then sort of like the Ice Bucket Challenge, they would pass it along. They would tag their friends, like four of their friends. Yeah, yeah. and then I... To do the same. Yeah, and then I completely ignored you, which is probably just as well. Because really, when, when you first sent it to me, I think that, that I had a... I always think about movies, how, how stories shape us, right? Yeah. How, they, how they influence our thinking, how we change because of them. Um, and so my m- brain immediately went that way. The idea of a movie defining you, that it speaks like if you watched this movie, someone else would be able to tell something very important about you. Yeah. That was sort of an interesting thing. And I had not really thought of myself in the context of movies. And so it was a, it was a very... It was a very interesting exercise. It fired up a lot of introspection for you. It yeah. really did. Yeah, so Paul was like, I can't answer this on Twitter. <laughs> That's too much. This is, we not, talk this about is not a 280-character <laughs> subject. We have to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. no, <laughs> because and, we love talking about ourselves, right? But. Anyways, exactly. Because <laughs> to your point, we like getting into our own heads and trying to figure out what is the deal with myself? Well, <laughs> but I also think that, that these conversations, they really prod you. I mean, whenever you hear about people talking about what is really important to them, it automatically makes you think about what's important to you. How, you know, the, the similarities that you might have with this person, um, the different things that, that, that where you differ, you know, and I know that our movies are going to be completely different because I'm, you know. Because we're different people. Because we're, we're different and, people. And frankly, the movies that are ended up on my list, both in the, the, the Twitter game yeah. and for this episode, surprised me in some ways. Like there were there are a couple on here that I'm like, why did I Yeah. Why do why do I feel like I have to include this? Right. Right. There's one that I'm still looking at and thinking, I gotta take this off, but it kept coming to mind. <laughs> no. I I had the very same reaction. There was I <laughs> I, sp- 
I was I woke up and for some this this will make you <laughs> this is really bizarre because I really don't wake up thinking of this podcast all the time. But there was one morning where I just sort of woke up and all of a sudden the first thing that popped into my head was movies that define me. And all of a sudden there was this movie that just popped out of nowhere and I thought, oh my goodness, where did that come from? But it, it made my list. It did. And so we decided, let's rank them. <laughs> because we're geeks. Because we're geeks. We do. And so we decided we're going to do the movies that define us and the movies that shape us. And so, without further ado, let's get into Rank Geeks. And here we are in Rank Geeks. Two smelly nerds. Telling you are well, let's hope not too smelly. Putting things in I've numerical got to order. Do. I've got to be around people today. I don't want to be too smelly. Yeah. So. Well, or or maybe we're just yeah. Maybe we're just taking the nerdy things we enjoy and putting them in a numerical order together. <laughs> it's it could be you know what interpret how you choose <laughs> however you want. <laughs> we'll, we'll let the fruit speaks for itself. Are we fired or do we have a show where yeah. we've put things in numerical order? <laughs> okay. But as we said, we're going to talk about the movies that have shaped us and the movies that have defined us. We we did split those out. Right. Because we think they're there is different a movies. pretty different. Yeah. And that was sort of the interesting thing on that that Twitter thread of the hashtag Filmstruck4 yeah. was you had people interpreting movies that defined me differently. You had right. those that interpreted it as the ones that shaped me. You had those that interpreted it as these are the ones that kind of – encapsulate who I am. Yeah. And so uh, we thought, let's go ahead and break them out and break them down. No, absolutely. I think it's the the only way to do it. I think that, that they can be such different lists. And for me, they're totally different. Yeah. And uh, so without – let's let's go ahead and dive in. We're going to go uh, – we, we picked our, our top three for both categories. Correct. Correct. So, Paul, why don't, we're going to start with Shaped. Because let's start with Shaped. Build our, we built ourselves from the ground up. Well, exactly, because you're Shaped – before you can define yourself, oh. right? You're, the shaping yeah. def- determines the de- definition. Yeah, yeah. and, and I got to tell you that I already completely departed from our whole concept because I didn't really <laughs> rank them as like this is the number one movie. That, sure. That that I sort okay. of did it in chronological right. chronological order because right. it's, for me like it's that. it's a little like a it's a little like a Lego structure yeah. where you sort of build. Yeah, um, mine. Mine incidentally also like I did mine in ranking, mm-hmm. but they also happen to be chronological. So there you go. Oh, so there you go. And I yeah. think that you could make the same argument for me. Yeah. So, so the number one movie that shaped me. Are you going to start at number one? No, no. I'm sorry. The the number the first movie. First, okay. The you're going to start movie that shaped right. me. Yeah. So this, and this will come as no surprise, I don't think, to you, Jake. Um, but when I was seven years old. I walked into a theater, little theater in Taos, New Mexico, and watched a tiny little movie called Star Wars. And it was, it changed me. I don't want to argue with your timeline, but weren't you eight when Star Wars came out? Uh, it didn't get to. <laughs> no, okay, hold on, hold on. Yeah, it didn't get to your no, theater until right, you were you're nine. No, right, I was eight. That's, you're such a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> You're revealing my age to the whole. Sorry, I just wanted to make sure. You know, we were talking about your birthday. No, 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 no. Recently, yeah, yeah, so. exactly. Nineteen sixty-nine. So seventy-seven. <laughs> I would have been eight. Although, you know what? It would have been. Maybe well, it was right before your birthday. It was right before my birthday. Okay, that's what it Maybe. was. All right. 
<laughs> okay, anyway, it was Star Wars. And, and and the thing about Star Wars, I had never really seen a movie like this. and, and Nobody had. Nobody had. And for my little still forming brain, it was a revolution. You know, yeah. before that, I think I might have mentioned this, my favorite movie had been uh, The Cat from Outer Space or something mm. like that, which was great. The better movie. It sure. was. <laughs> it had this cool color. It didn't it was, have this whiny Luke Skywalker in it. <laughs> but I think that Star Wars was really the very first movie that um, that I was really passionate about. And I started on family trips. I would start you know, our car, we had a really old car, which squeaked. And so I would pretend that it was R2-D2. So I would talk to it as we would go on these family trips. And I would dream about it. And I would think about it all the time. I made these, I made these cardboard figures. We couldn't afford the, you know, the the action figures. So, so I made my own. It was a huge deal in my life. But the other thing that, that really impacted me from this movie was as time would go on, my Star Wars love never really went away. It, it sort of ebbed and flowed at times, you know, that type of thing. But, but I would always have considered myself a Star Wars fan. And not as a I Trekkie? Got, not a Trekkie. Not a Trekkie. I, I can <laughs> do okay with, with Star Trek. But Star Wars is really, really my heroine, you know. So, uh, it was, so but as I grew older and as I started to, to start thinking about – spiritual stuff and, and all this kind of stuff, um, my dad and I started having conversations about Star Wars, and, and he actually uh, gave me books about how terrible Star Wars yeah. was in terms of, like, their theology, yeah. you know, because it's very accurate, Eastern, yeah. mystical, very yin and yang, all that kind of stuff. He took me to a Pretty special bad theology, lecture. Yeah, yeah I, 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 he, was, he just You're not going was, to Star Wars for <laughs> theology, but <laughs> no, once but, you're there, yeah, it's bad. But I do think there was a point in time, because I was still a Star Wars fan, that my dad thought, oh, well, this kid, he might run off and become a Taoist priest or something. Well, yeah, like you were, I mean, you watch this movie, and then all of a sudden you're talking to the car. You're creating, (laughs) you're creating dead, fictional characters on cardboard. Oh yeah, you're you're having dreams and visions about dreams and aliens. (laughs) I can see how this would concern your father. My dad just really didn't get it. He liked better movies, you know. (laughs) I think he saw through you. Yeah, yeah, so he was he was a little concerned for my soul, and maybe I would be worried if my seven year old started like. Talking to yeah. inanimate objects. Well, you gotta, you gotta. It gives yourself pause. I was a pretty weird kid, but even that was <laughs> a little weird for me. So, anyway, we we started going into these these dialogues about this movie, and um, I think honestly, Star Wars is one of the reasons why I do what I do today because of those conversations. Because I had to think, because I had to think about the underpinnings of this movie that I loved. Um, and think about what it was actually trying to tell me. It pushed me along this road, and it, and it sort of encouraged me to think about movies in an, in an entirely different way that I hadn't to beforehand. So, in some ways, Star Wars was sort of like a twofold experience for me. Um, it was first my my first movie love, and then it was second my first movie intellectual experience. Yeah, you know. Yep. So. There you go, Star Wars, and that would be a new hope 
for anybody like for all the youngins, the like youngins, yeah, like, yeah. Wait, so like the whole series? Oh yeah, no, no. It would be the original Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't called Episode Four when it came out. Mm-hmm. That was always confusing to me as a kid. When, of course, I was born almost. I was born, you know, over a decade after the first one came out. Yeah, and. And so by the time I was old enough, my dad had the VHS sets and was like, well, why, why, is it, why does it start with episode four? That's so weird. Why wouldn't it start uh, with episode one? Yeah, exactly. Right? It was a little bit puzzling. Weird. It was because one so was weird. terrible. So anyway. <laughs> it was because he's like, yeah, you know what? My first three aren't that great. I gotta get people <laughs> Let's to just jump start. right into four. Yeah. Um, all right, so I'll go ahead and go in chronological order, even though it's dis- so. We're I'll, I'll just go with you here. Oh, I'm fine. No, 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 I'm going there. I'm there. Okay, and I, I I can't I can't wax too eloquently about this one because I already have so much. It's, right. In fact, somebody I was uh, spending some time it didn't with an stop old, me with Star Wars. No, <laughs> but I was talking with an old friend recently, and and he he checked out the podcast. He's like, do you do you like really like Lord of the Rings? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, I, I end up talking about it probably every third or fourth episode. <laughs> but that's why it's number one on my list, not just because it was where what Star Wars was to you, Lord of the Rings was to me as a child. Right. Um, How old were you when you I was out? 12 years old when uh, – So the, 7 to 12 is really like the peak formative I think so. Time. Those are your first – yeah, those first memories that you actually hold on to for yeah. longer than a couple of days or a couple of months that you carry with you into adulthood, those feelings, those emotions. Those really are transformative years. Yeah. You're kind of coming into your own, figuring out what you like, beginning to have your own opinions on stuff. And Lord of the Rings was sort of um, multifaceted in its own way for me in that it was also – you know, 2001 was sort of as the internet was becoming more of this multimedia juggernaut. It, of course, it was before that. I'm not saying that sure. was, but to me in my life, you know, and to I think to a lot of people, it was really starting. You know, we were finally were about to get like T1 speeds where you could get, get right. pictures on your computer in. 10 seconds instead of, you know, minutes. It was moving away from the time when the internet was a really cool, useful tool to the time when it sort of took over all of our lives. Yeah, becoming ubiquitous. Yeah. And and so when I found out about Lord of the Rings and I got these books from my dad and I found out that there was these movies coming out and I read all three books and then this movie was coming and – I don't even t- – this is the interesting thing. I don't know how I found out about the website specifically. Like if I searched for it or if somebody gave me a tip. But onering.net was my jam. It was my homepage. Like if I logged into Netscape, <laughs> it went sh- – it, like it was onering.net. That was where I got my Lord of the Rings information. That was where I got my wallpapers, my screensavers. Wow. That was – it was – it was – Pervasive, yeah. you know, where Star Wars came out of nowhere. I was even before yeah. the Fellowship of the Ring came out. I knew everything. In fact, my dad and I, when we went to see it opening day, so uh, you went to see it opening day. I believe so. Wow. Or at least it was definitely opening weekend in my memory. It's opening day, Mr. Roberson. You're a pretty cool guy. I'm <laughs> I'm impressed. Um, my dad actually had to shush me about. <laughs> 
10 or 15 <laughs> minutes in because I kept nudging him because I had I had dissected every trailer. You know, I had I would I would sit this with really, Windows Media this Player. Really says a lot about yeah. you. Yeah, I, I had Windows Media Player at the time, right? And you yeah. could get trailers, and so I would spend however many hours it would take to download these trailers yeah. and watch and rewatch. All the stuff that places like IGN and YouTube are breaking trailers down and like dissecting the minutia. That's what I was doing as a 12-year-old, yeah. right? And I would nudge my dad and, oh, this is this part, this is this part. And he's like, Jake, just let me watch the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it was, it was so – like it was not a surprise to right. me that this was coming and that this was going to be awesome. But yet it was still so big that it blew you away. Yeah. Because it was – Imp- so much better than everything else. So let me ask you. See, for me, in some ways, that whole thing, and I totally sort of get it, but the to to know so much about a movie before you ever walk in, does that did that spoil it at all? It didn't did it at all? En- did it enhance it? I I mean I obviously I can't say exactly since I didn't I can't go right, back you and can't experience go back, it without right, it. Right. But it still. I was still so young that I hadn't had – again, sort of with the Star Wars thing, it was so big. It was so ambitious that you didn't know how everything was going to play out. You didn't right. know what was going to – exactly was going to be included. You knew some things were getting cut. But the, the depth of the experience that you had with it I think made it rich because you were still blown away when you saw the Balrog you know, lumber onto the screen for the first time. Still, for my money, the best movie monster ever. Yeah. Love the ball. Such ride. a great design, and everything was cast. You're like, how, you know, I like these casts. They look good, but how is it going to actually play out? Yeah. And collecting, this is back when you still got some good collector stuff from fast food restaurants. I still have two of the goblets. Oh, Glass goodness. goblets that you could get from Burger King. Oh, see, those are probably worth like three gazillion dollars now. Well, if I had the whole set, for some reason I didn't get the full four. I've got to uh, – and, now, and now it's like, ah, you know, am I going to go back and track down the other two? Oh, uh, yeah. But anyways. eBay. It was such a – I remember being on vacation with my family before the Two Towers came out. You know, of course, so Fellowship has come out. It was amazing. I'm still on OneRing.net all the time. <laughs> But then I go on vacation and access to internet was limited because we didn't have these smartphones. Yeah, yeah. And so at the hotels, I would get, you know, they would put USA Today, you know, outside your door, and I would scour USA Today to find any news on Lord of the Rings, and I would read about the Weta Digital Workshop and what they were doing with the orcs as uh, to create the two towers (laughs) in a newspaper. Wow. In 2002, as Man. a 13-year-old, you know, child, so I was geeking out. There you go, number number one for me, Lord of the Rings. That's pretty great. That's yeah. pretty great. No, and it's interesting. In in some ways, it's interesting that we had two fairly similar movies that that really launched this conversation. Yeah. You know, because the one thing that I thought of when I saw, of course, I was like 67 when Lord <laughs> of the Rings came out, but but the one thing that I thought of when I watched Fellowship of the Rings is I walked out of there and I thought I I was walking to my car that I was now able to drive and <laughs> I said I didn't know I could feel like a 7-year-old kid again after yeah. coming out from a movie because that was what it made me feel like yeah. it was just it was really a great movie it was one of those few movies where you watch it and even if you're really excited about it as apparently we both were it actually exceeded our it did expectations. Exceed my expectations, right. and I can still watch it today. Yeah, no, I I, I want to rewatch them all now. Yeah. 
right now. You're welcome. I'm gone. All right, number two. Number two. This is going to be an odd one. Uh, monkey business. Have you watched Mon- monkey, monkey business? Monkey business. I only know monkey business as a local business <laughs> where kids that just come monkeys? and play inside. Oh. You know, oh. and so the kids can, you know, do all sorts of monkey business. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So. <laughs> all right, monkey business. Monkey business. Now, now let me preface this by saying this was also really interesting to me as I was putting together this list. For me, movies are not nearly as formative as some of the other things that sure you know I think talking with other people when I think about uh when we think about things that change us, they tend to be books mm. more than movies right and for a lot of people when when we get to the define section, a lot of people feel very strongly about certain songs, certain right. songs define them. So the the whole movies that change me because I get so in so wrapped up in books they tend to be a much more powerful influence on my life but monkey business was an influential movie in a way, even though you wouldn't think it. it I can a, see why. Now I pulled it up on IMDb. Yeah. So yeah. It, so I it, can see why. It, what year was it made? Fifty two. Fifty two. Cary Grant, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Yeah. Ginger Rogers. Yep. I can see why you enjoyed this. Yeah. It was. It was. I can tell you that that this was back in my childhood before there was Netflix, before there were DVDs. We didn't even have like a video recorder. We would go down to this old movie theater that used to play old movies called The Showboat. And um, this was one of the very first black and white movies that I had seen, like, in this movie theater. And, you know, we had seen a couple before, maybe. I had gone with my mom just to humor her, her you know, because she really enjoyed these old movies from her ancient... She was living in the past. Ancient past. That's yeah. exactly right. And so you think... Well, they can be kind of fun for as old as they are. I sat down and watched Monkey Business. I thought it was like one of the funniest movies I had ever seen. I mean, and no qualifications. It wasn't one of the funniest old movies. It wasn't one of the funniest black and white movies. It was just a riot. And so from Monkey Business, I sort of got an appreciation for old things. Now, now essentially everything now that, that you I are love, old, you can <laughs> finally appreciate yourself. That's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly right. Really, it has to be 50 years old for me to really appreciate yeah. it. And Monkey Business was the very first movie that I really appreciated. Um, it, it introduced me to Cary Grant, who's my favorite actor today. It introduced me to Marilyn Monroe, who, you know, she's Marilyn Monroe. And then you've got Ginger Rogers, who you always associate, or at least I do, with Fred Astaire. And she's always dancing and everything. I never realized what a great actress she was. And she's just hilarious in this. So so I'm not saying that this is going to influence your life the way it influenced <laughs> me. But if someone has not seen Monkey Business out there, they should go out and watch it. Because it's hilarious. I mean, is the IMDb summary sentence accurate? A chemist finds his personal and professional life turned upside down when one of his chimpanzees... <laughs> Finds the fountain of youth. <laughs> that, is, that is absolutely right. It is absolutely right. Starring Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> yeah, it's. Is she one of the? Is she the chimpanzee? <laughs> no, she is not. She the actually... monkey takes a hit of the spring. Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> no, it's really funny because she's barely in the movie at all. It's Cary oh, okay. Grant and, and Ginger Rogers' movie, right? And so the monkey turns really young. 
I'm, I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to tell you about it now. The the monkey turns really young and they go, oh, that's really surprising. And then, you know, they <laughs> shocking, <laughs> shocking. And then they have, a, you know, the, the formula somehow gets into everybody's liquids, food, whatever. I as, can't remember. As formulas do. Yeah. So Cary Grant, he's... He turns young. Ginger Rogers turns young. They do stupid young things like you do all the time, Jay. All the time. And and Marilyn Monroe. I mean, he sort of just becomes this this crush that Cary Grant pursues in a way, even though you know he's happily married and all that kind mm, of stuff. He's mm. it's not it's not that type of movie. But all of a sudden, because he feels so young, he gets crazy haircuts. He starts diving, and he starts hanging out with Marilyn Monroe. He's got this vim and vigor. He's got this this vim and vigor, and so all of a sudden, he starts acting twenty years younger than he actually is. And it's actually it's interesting because I think it's actually comes back around, and it says, you know, growing old is okay. You well, know, there you. And that's where I am right now. You don't got to go chasing Marilyn Monroe around. Yeah. It's got to be exhausting. It's got to be exhausting. (laughs) All right. Number two for you. Number two. I thought I, you know, it was, it was my foggy brain. I thought I had chronological order, but this one actually came out before. Okay. So it was chronological for me and that I didn't see it before I saw it. Oh, well, see, that counts. I didn't see it till after. No, that counts. Um, but it was. I mean, because really monkey business is way chronologically before Star Wars show. So it's chronological for me, but it was The Matrix. Um, well, not yeah, the whole series, a, but it was R-rated. Your dad would never yeah, like. There was see. no way I was going to watch that at ten years old. Good for you, Mister Robertson. I'm appreciating you so much more during this entire <laughs> podcast. However, even though I didn't see it, I could, I, I could have told you more about it than ninety-nine, possibly a hundred percent of my peers and most adults. <laughs> Because that was – so it came out in the middle of this time where my dad was realizing like this kid really digs movies and TV shows. So I should probably kind of like figure out what the deal with all these movies and TV shows is and help him like create, navigate it navigate it, and like start to see deeper rather than you know just kind of taking them at face value. And so The Matrix came out then and of course I had a lot of peers – that this was an incre- you know thought this was an incredible movie and just loved all the violence and the killing and the death and my dad's like all right well you're not going to watch it but there was so much written about it at the time like from a discernment from a worldview because similar to Star Wars there's so much like weird religion there is some right. eastern mysticism there's gnosticism there's all there's you know because of the gnosticism there's some gospel nods but they're twisted and you know there's so much weird spirituality swirling it's around it's a very spiritual movie yeah and it's and it's humanist and all these different yeah. things yeah and so i knew everything there was to know about the matrix a good you know, five, six years before I ever watched the movie. I finally mm-hmm. watched it when I was like 16. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then my dad's qualification was I couldn't watch the lobby scene, which of course is one of – outside of the rooftop scene is like the most uh, loved scene in those movies right, right. because of how violent it was and because of the time-bending uh, you know, bullet time and all the action there. But The Matrix was just – such a again kind of a cultural juggernaut everybody was watching it everybody thought it was amazing but for me it was transformative years before i ever saw it because that was when my dad's like let's dig into this stuff let's look at the worldviews behind these movies that we watch and so even though i'd never watched it i dug deep into it and it was very transformative again to where how i consume movies in television right, now right right you know really 
began with the Matrix. Yeah, yeah. Our, the the real moral of this podcast seems to be how our dads really messed us up. <laughs> you know, because they. But I was saying so, this way a good way for me. No, yeah. no, absolutely. I, I, I think, but it, it really does express, in some ways, it, it not only expresses how influential the movies are, but how right. influential our our families have yep. been within this realm. Absolutely, you know, because I think that. Um, we really do process movies on a different level than I think a lot of other people do, and I I really appreciate that. I'm gl- I think that that's I wouldn't want it to be any other way. Right. But it is interesting how influential both of our both of our parents were really in, in that walk in where they they encouraged us to go more deeply into these things. Uh, really consider them from a whole bunch of different layers and i think that's pretty fascinating so i think maybe i I, do you think do you think because of all of your your research on the on the matrix how did that affect the movie when you watched it when you finally watched it um i i think i was i didn't quite geek out over it the same way my peers did mm-hmm. um of course i really enjoyed the action as a young yeah. young boy slash becoming a man yeah but i was bothered by it in different ways also it was one of those where i was like speaking of the lobby scene mm-hmm. where i was bothered by this sense that oh he's he is actually killing real people who who don't realize that they're enslaved to the matrix you know that was that was what bothered my dad the most about that scene is that he comes in guns blazing and you know slices through all these they slice through all these security guards right. who are just dudes being security guards you know they're they're real people like the the people you see in their little womb cocoons in the real world dying for real in real life because their brains were shut down yeah. in the matrix and so this sense of you know the but in the movie the end justifies the means that was right. one of those first times where my my dad again that this worldview of that was something he tried to really instill in us as his children is that the end never justifies the means yeah. and and it bothered him that this made it look not only cool right but right right like this is what you need to do in order to do the better thing in the end and for for him he didn't want us to ingest that sort of worldview he wanted us to have a higher view of the dignity of human life yeah. and the dignity of human beings even beyond that yeah. that we don't mistreat them even in pursuit of a good goal that it's yeah. it's worth doing the right things the right way mhm yeah which is a great segue actually to my Next movie that I want to talk about. Get this it. is the third one. Uh, movies that changed me, and that would be The Mission. Uh, the this mo- is uh, De Niro? De Niro, yeah. yes. It was made in 1981, I believe. So it came out actually the, the year that one of my very favorite all-time movies came out, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. I remember seeing it mentioned, I think, during the Oscars of that year. And I thought, what is this mission thing? There's this guy going over a waterfall. But but essentially what it is, is it's a story, it's a period story about uh, about South America taking place back when slavery was still legal. And Spain and Portugal pretty much ruled much of these unknown continents. And it stars Robert De Niro as a slave trader. And a person who actually captures um, 
indigenous people within this within this area, and uh, and Jeremy Irons co-stars with him as this Jesuit priest. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually also stars um, who's that guy from from the Taken movies? Liam Neeson. It Liam stars Neeson. a very young Liam Neeson, um, who is pretty great in this as well. But but the movie is deeply spiritual. Um, the De Niro character eventually kills his brother. Like his, he mm. finds out that his brother is having an affair with his main squeeze, and so he kills his brother. He's feeling terrible about it. It is a problem on bo- on two levels. So he he begins to starve himself to death, and he realizes what a terrible person he has become. Um, and Jeremy Irons comes to him in prison and offers him a chance at redemption says are you willing to try to be redeemed and and the De Niro character says no there's there's no penance that is is great enough for me but are you willing to try it Jeremy Irons says and so he takes the De Niro character in into the jungle into the very same area where he has been kidnapping these Indians and sending them off to slavery to work with them as sort of this Jesuit assistant Mm. Um, and it's it's an incredibly powerful moment. You see him. One of one of my favorite scenes in the movie is is as they're making their way to to this to this Indian village. The De Niro character is dragging the suit of iron behind him as his penance. That's mm. part of his thing. He's dragging the weight of this the sword and the armor and all the the weapons of war that have been have been his livelihood, pulling them across this terrible, horrible terrain, um, and finally at the very end he you see that he's literally at the end of the his rope in a way he comes down he sees the indians the indians rush up to him they threaten him with knives and then they cut they cut the 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 armor loose from him and de niro just bursts into tears and it's a really beautiful scene of this sense of of grace and redemption and and the release of sins you see in that moment that freedom um it's a really powerful moment and it's one of just several moments within this movie that are incredibly powerful and incredibly moving and in the end it really does become sort of this this struggle of de niro turns all around and he becomes this this jesuit minister in, in a sense and then they have to fight for these these indians freedom mm. because the the land is going to go over to this to i think portugal in there so the, all these people are threatened with slavery again and there becomes this debate between the de niro character and the irons character de niro wants to fight for these indians the jeremy irons character he's a jesuit priest he can't pick up arms he's going to pray for him he doesn't want it to happen but he's he's sort of he feels like he 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 just needs to follow his order, and uh, it really becomes this interesting struggle between ends justifying the means. It, it 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 really it's. I'm not saying this very well, but it's an incredibly powerful and profound movie that that I think is just wonderful, and it's really a movie that I think almost everybody should see. Yeah, no, it's it's funny because I've actually never seen the whole thing. I've seen, I think, like the second half of it, but mm-hmm. having not seen the first half, it lost some of its power. Cause it's like, who is this guy? Why is he dragging armor around? Like, I yeah. don't, I don't get it. Like, 
Is, yeah. he's, is he bummed because who knows? I don't know. I didn't see the movie. Like a friend invited me like one summer. Their church was watching it for some reason. I don't even remember why their church was yeah. watching it on a Wednesday night. Maybe the youth group was. And and I got there late because I was off doing some sport of some kind. Yeah. And so I didn't see the whole thing. But it is interesting how uh, Liam Neeson, I'll just – yeah, he likes these movies about Jesuits. He likes these movies about Jesuits, and and I think the thing that changed me about this movie, when we're talking about the the premise yeah. of of what we're talking about, is is that I don't think I had ever seen a movie that made me think quite so hard about certain of these issues. Do you do you pick up arms to fight right. for something you believe in? Is it better to to move back? It's, it it what is the reality between truth and grace? Um, is there you know? What is the release of sin? You know, all that kind of stuff. There's all these really theological, huge theological components dealt with in this movie. And even to this day, I still often think about theological things in terms of this movie. Mm. Certain scenes will flash into my mind. Um, certain moments will strike me in, in in new and different ways. And I think that's the sign of a really great movie is yeah. that – and it, it definitely shows that a movie has changed you and it sticks with you for as long as this one has. Yeah. There you go. Well, for my final one of movies that shaped me, this is the most surprising one on either of my lists. <laughs> And and the one that I said, why is this one still sticking with me? Why am I putting it on the list? I think I'm figuring it out now. But it is 2005's The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Oh, my goodness. That is a surprising one. I'm still shocked that this is on here. And it's not because I recommend this movie. It's not because I think you anybody should go watch it to find themselves changed. It's... <laughs> Because that's that's not the so point of this movie. So we go from the mission yeah. to 40 year old virgin. virgin. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, I, I guess there's some relation. I mean, Jeremy Irons was a Jesuit priest, but anyway. <laughs> so, um, so the 40 year old virgin came out in 2005, and and I saw it around 05, 06 in that time frame. I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it on video, uh, like I think with a cousin, um, and it. It has stuck with me, I think, for two pretty big reasons in my life and why I would say it ultimately changed me. That age, one of those reasons, that age is kind of when as much as my dad, you know, wanted, you know, he, he helped shape this idea in me and helped me start to latch on to this idea that there's more to movies than meets the eye. And we have to to know that we have to dig into that. We have to be aware of that because these things can influence us. You know, they can shape us. But I, I hit this age in high school in this kind of like 16 to 18, 19 time frame where I sort of with that undeveloped frontal lobe thought, hey, I'm discerning. I know that these movies are trying to sell more than meets the eye because I'm so smart. Like I got this kind of arrogance mm -hmm. about it where it's like because I get that, because I'm so smart, I can watch stuff that I – is is stuff that I shouldn't watch. Right. Really, but I can handle it because I'm 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 not just one of those ignorant right. watchers. Even though this was an ignorant mindset, right, right, right. Uh, because when I look back, so I, I hit a point years later, like in my early twenties, where um, and I think I've talked about this elsewhere, like for Plugged In, and where I was struggling with um, 
with lust and with dealing and like I did not want, you know, with pornography and I didn't want to be consumed by that. I didn't want that in my life at all. And so as I was trying to weed that out and working with uh, with mentors and pastors and, and sort of weeding out, um, as I started to trace back, you know, why why is this pervasive? Of course, there's where I was exposed to it really young that it was really a transformative moment. But where it became a problem later was I started letting myself watch movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin and TV shows and things like that that even if they didn't show nudity, they had this attitude towards sex, towards sexuality that was very casual. And and I realized all these years later that I had spent so much time with people, with fake pseudo-friends in the movies and television that I watched that I sort of it started to get this idea that it wasn't that big of a deal. I wouldn't have said that out loud. It was subconscious, but that made slipping into that problem that much easier because all these people, all these influences in my life were saying it's not that big of a deal. And so The 40-Year-Old Virgin on the one hand sticks out to me as one of those first movies that I watched thinking there's no nudity in this movie. It's okay if I watch it because I, I got this. Right. Um, but – it had a very – but and then here's the paradox with The 40-Year-Old Virgin because the other thing that's very interesting about this movie, as casual as it is about sexuality, it also weirdly ends up reinforcing the idea that saving ourselves for someone special and not treating sex as cavalierly as the culture treats it is actually a really good thing. I, I remember being stunned because when I, I all I had heard about it is it's this raunchy right. sex comedy, and it is. Right. But the ultimate moral of the movie is he's actually got a better beat. The guy that doesn't have sex until he's married has a better beat on healthy sexuality than all the people treating it casually. Yeah. It ends up sort of saying, you know what? Maybe we're too sex-obsessed. And so it also kind of – made me realize that the culture as it tells these stories you know whether they're action movies comedy movies drama movies you know uh even when they're raunchy comedies our storytellers the people that tell stories our culture is looking for truth in life and that was the other thing like that this movie opened me up to is here's this movie that i would not recommend to anybody right and that is it doesn't get the answer right but it's actually looking for the truth. Yeah. It's one to, it's saying there's an emptiness in the sex obsessed culture and it's trying to find the answer and it moves in the right direction even if it doesn't get all the way there to say maybe we've treated this too casually. And so it was one of those first times where I sort of realized as deep as I had gotten into movies and movie analysis before, I realized, hey, people are looking for truth in these things. And so how does that change the way I talk to other people? Right. And so, you know, and that was reinforced when I watched Shaun of the Dead years later. <laughs> Not sex obsessed, but it was, you know, this movie about zombies. Right. But it's about finding life in a in an empty world. Yeah. No, and, and you're absolutely right. I think that so many of these movies, they can be problematic. They You can see the heart behind them. And there's something... There can be, even in those, like as you say, those raunchy sex comedies, there can be something deeply um, poignant 
about them. Yeah. You know, and I think Judge Apatow, who did did Forty Year Old Virgin, is from what he, I recall. He did direct it. That was one of his yeah, for, like where he kind of became yeah real well known. Yeah, he uh, his movies are just terrible from a content perspective, and yet they're they do have this nugget He's, of yeah. goodness to them. He's created one of the most pro life movies in the mainstream, like outside of Christian movie makers. Yeah. In knocked up, knocked up that yeah. that has been out there. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's interesting. fascinating the way he's looking for it. So, anyways, it, it it got me thinking about how the apostle Paul, you know, Paul's alter ego, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, had that moment on Mars Hill where he was talking to the Romans and he said, you know what, and like he kind of leads into this saying, you know, I've been looking around at all the gods that you worship. You have all these statues and you're looking for truth, but here's this one. It's it's pretty interesting. It says it's an unknown. God. It's like, let me tell you something. I know this God and let me tell you about him. And, and so for me, the 40 year old virgin, as much as I don't recommend it was a moment where I sort of realized, Hey, the culture has these unknown God, this unknown God it's looking for in all the stories it tells. And so I don't necessarily need to see these things to know that, but I can still use them. Um, even if I don't see them to, to understand what people are looking for. So there we go. Woo! So there you go. That was loud. Uh, (laughs) But I feel like we really dug into a lot of different stuff there. Yeah. No, I think so too. From the geeky to the poignant to the raunchy. (laughs) No, and I I think that that really does go to show you just how influential these movies can be. And, And they don't need to be profound Schindler's List type of movies, moonlight type of movies to to really impact us. I mean, they can they can range from these these raunchy comedies to these old black and white movies. I mean, I think that there's there's a lot of power within movies and it depends on on what we bring to the table as well as what the movie creators bring to us. Yeah. And uh, they can be incredibly powerful. Yeah. All right. <laughs> like whoo you know what, Paul? When I'm we, drained now. When we originally came up with this concept, we thought maybe we could pack in movies that shaped us <laughs> and movies that defined us into the yeah. same episode. Yeah. I'm glad that we decided not to and that we decided to turn this into a two-episode thing because, as you can tell, these movies that shaped us, yeah. we ended up having a lot more to say about them. Yeah. And I think that just goes to show just how much they actually did shape us for yeah. good and for bad. No, it's really interesting because I, I think that, and it really does speak to the power of these things, you know, the power of story, that when we start talking about these movies that had such an influence on us, they kind of take us over in yeah. a way, you know, and I, I and I think in a good way. I think that, that I, I loved what you said about the 40-year-old virgin because it really does give us an indication of, of just that that the good and the bad of, of sometimes the movies where they can have a really, really negative influence on us in, that, in ways that we don't even necessarily know. Um, but they can be so powerfully positive to us in a way and, and give us they – can, they can tell stories and they can give voice to emotions and thoughts and feelings and even spiritual impulses that we have a hard time putting into just words. Yeah. And I think that that's what makes them – that's what makes them so influential and why we <laughs> spend so much time geeking out on yeah. them here. <laughs> so there you have it for the movies that shaped us, two things here. 
one, I'm really excited to, on the next episode, dive into the movies that we would say define who we are now as adults. And I think it's an, a pretty interesting conversation to be had around that list because of the ways it can ebb and flow, I would imagine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but also, I'm very interested to hear for you guys, as you listen to this, what movies would you say have defined you? Or no, no, no. We're talking about that next time. Sorry, I'm, I'm already excited for that. One. <laughs> what movies? I want to. I'm going to make this clear. What movies have shaped you? Yeah. yeah. Hit us up on the Twitter. I want to know what the top three movies that shaped you. Yeah. From your youth or your young adulthood, as you were kind of in t- getting into this world, what were those movies that really changed yeah. something about how you saw movies or how you saw people or how you saw the world? Yeah. 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 What movies made you just sort of sit up straighter in your chair, wherever it was, you know, and and made you go, made you gasp, made you think, made you cry, made you, you know, just think about even your your family or friends in a different way. We'd love to hear about it. So let us know. You can catch up with us on the Twitter at at Jake underscore Roberson or at AC Paul. Tag us both or hop over onto Facebook if that's your preferred medium of choice. We have a group there called Pop Culture with Fan People and Know-It-Alls. But now it's time for the most least important thing. Welcome to the most least important thing, the way we love to wrap up every single show, talking about the big dealios in the pop culture and the small dealios in the pop culture. And then we mix and match. We decide we – dis- we get to decide whether the big things are as big as they may seem or if they're deservedly – or if they actually deserve to be smaller. Yeah, exactly. And vice versa. I think – And yeah. vice versa. Yeah. Delio. I love that word. <laughs> so, Paul, what's the delio <laughs> right. that you've okay. got for us today? So I don't know if you've heard of this little movie called The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. I have heard about this, and I'm excited for it. Yeah. So The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, it, it is a Don Quixote quest in and of itself in some ways. Terry Gilliam, who is famous for his work with Monty Python. Mm-hmm. He has done a lot of really interesting movies, including one we'll be talking about next episode, but we'll leave it at that. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, He is one of my personal favorite, really interesting filmmakers. He has been working on this movie for the last 29 years. What? It has become my entire such, lifetime. I know this it's is the story of my life. Yeah, when you talk about movies that have shaped us, this movie has shaped Terry Gilliam. This is going to be like—is this going to be like the Truman Show, except in real life, where yeah. I find out that he spent the last twenty-nine years <laughs> working on this movie because it's the story of my life? <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Darn it! You do have some Don Quixote-ish type of. It's going to say my life is. Yeah, no, it's true. It's I true. am Don Quixote. That's why I like this. I like Don Quixote. <laughs> this movie has been so plagued with misfortune that it has spawned not one but two documentaries Ooh, <laughs> lost in la mancha uh came out in 2002 to track how snake bit this whole production was it has gone through 
four to six different leads in, in its two main characters. Um, that was the first one. A new, another one just came out called He Dreams of Giants, which is much mm. more focused on Gilliam himself. But the thing is, the man who killed Don Quixote is finally coming out. It may even be out by the time this drops. The irony is it's, it's closing down Cannes uh, in France, uh, May 19th and opening up there. It still doesn't have distribution here in the United States, so we still may never get to see it. I was going to say, I've been waiting for the screener yeah. the, the screener invitation for this one, <laughs> and it still hasn't come. I'm really looking forward to seeing this. I really want to see this. So yeah. so that's my most least important thing. It is it is the most important thing in Terry Gilliam's life, whether it is <laughs> in anybody sure. else's. That is yet to be seen. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, what's this, uh, Scorsese had – Maybe a less dramatic, but similarly long journey in his making of silence, silence, right? Which, as we've talked about on this very show, is a powerful, powerful movie, but it didn't get much commercial yeah. success. Right. Because how many people want to go watch Jesuit priests tortured in 16th, 17th century Japan or whatever it was? It's a hard it sell. It's a hard sell. Yeah, it's, it's not popcorn fair. No. No, and it's it's one that is tough to watch. Even had, I had to make myself watch it for this show because it's a hard watch. It's a hard watch. <laughs> it is, it and is. so I mean, Gilliam is not. It, it's obviously not going to be that serious. But these long term passion projects are always so finicky. Obviously, in the making of them. Yeah. But it's some. You know, at what point do you throw in the towel? Yeah. Well, I mean, I probably would have a lot sooner than twenty nine years. It'll be interesting to see whether the the story itself will stand on its own, where you forget get about all the trauma that went into making it or whether you're just thinking about oh i can see i can picture i can picture johnny depp in this role where adam driver is now you know all this kind of stuff because because the story the actual story of the making it can can completely take over the story itself yeah and speaking of taking over the story itself that leads us to my most least important thing where by now everybody except paul (laughs) <laughs> has seen the music video for This Is America by Childish Gambino, a.k.a. Donald Glover. You guys have heard me talk about Atlanta before, way back. In, I mean, I, I brought this up last year. Last year. On the show because it, the show impressed me so much in its first season um, and is back after a delay. You know, since Donald Glover made had to make the solo movie, there was a delay, and so season two didn't even end up coming out till this spring. But it's just as crazy and wacky as the first in a in an interesting way. But anyways, Donald Glover or Childish Gambino rele- like essentially released this song to the world when he performed it live on Saturday Night Live, and then the music video dropped and it got about thirty million views in the first two days. I mean, it just went nuts yeah because that's almost a subscription to this podcast actually i mean it's almost at that level almost as as important as our show yeah uh except way more so (laughs) and and there's already been a, a lot talked about with this because it's it's donald glover you know with what he's done with atlanta he kind of encapsulates in this is america the song and the music video and that he's very incisive into the cultural moment but i think an interesting thing about this music video there was a piece in vice that came out after it and it said 
please, for the for the love of a holy being, don't meme Childish Gambino's This Is American music video because people were already taking clips, turning them into GIFs or taking screenshots and turning them into memes to you know say goofy and silly things on the internet and totally missing the fact that – but actually I think Vice also misses it and I and – because I, I was thinking – they're saying – Donald Glover is in a sense – one of the things he's doing in This Is America is sort of cutting us off at the knees when it comes to the memification and the gifification or jiffification, however you want to say that, of our culture where we take all these serious things and we take all these moments and we reduce them down into memes. Right. And right. we we have a difficult time processing them. However, at the same time, memes can – do the same thing that his music video does and they can also when done well and this you see less frequently but when done well can also be incisive and sort to sort of start to expose our ridiculous mindsets in other parts of culture the way he's trying to get his music video to do it so in this sense you have this self-feeding problem that the music video is trying to address that the memes it's trying to just address the memes. The memes are trying to address it and also the culture. And then Vice and all these other people are trying to take that and say, hey, wait, isn't this the point? And it both is and isn't because it, as much as it's cutting off our reduction of language into memes and into GIFs, it's also understanding of the fact that that is a lot of the language that we trade in. Mm-hmm online yeah. anymore and so it also understands and is speaking at that level and so in a sense even as it says this is a problem it's communicating as such i think in hopes and this would be fascinating to talk to donald about this or childish however you want to refer to him about this to see how much of it he sort of expected to, to and wanted to be turned into memes and gifs right. in order to further highlight well, yeah. problems that we're dealing with and so it thereby becomes, inhabit that paradox. Yeah, it becomes sort of a meta commentary. Yep. You know, in, in it uses the culture to comment on, you know, it, it just it blends in a lot of different disparate aspects of our culture. Yeah. And I think that that's that's an interesting thing. Yeah. So the fascinating thing about this this music video is how it inhabits both of those worlds and both delegitimizes and legitimizes them. Like it's it's really quite the fascinating it's work. The culture of paradox. The culture of paradox. So there you go. This is America, Childish Gambino. That's my most least important thing this go round. What's your guys's? <laughs> Hit us up on the Twitter. We we're curious to know what's banging around in your brains or souls or wherever wherever things rattle around <laughs> but until next time where we talk about the movies that define us i'm jake i'm paul we'll catch you guys on the flip side bye He's not bad. He's not bad. Just watch Burn After Reading. Hilarious in that. In a very... He's a wacky sort of dude when he wants to be. He really... that Again, just... He can be that smoldering leading man. 
He can be a megalomaniac. Why did he not go, like, he could have been, like, the next Cary Grant in some ways. Because he's a lot like that. I mean, Cary Grant is just super silly. Yeah. Well, but I think Brad has more range than that. So why... Why? Why stick with those only those two things? Because then he can go. He can go be in snatch. I know we've already had this conversation, but it just right. makes All itself. Right. <laughs> okay. 